Hello and welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast. My name is Asta Sharma and I'm a trainee editor for BJ Psych Advances. Today we're recording live at the Royal College of Psychiatrists International Congress 2019 in London and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Professor Steve Kissley who's going to talk to us about his recent BJ Psych Advances article titled Predatory Journals and Dubious Publishers How to Avoid Being Their Prey. Steve is a professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the University of Queensland in Australia and he's also an adjunct professor of psychiatry, community health and epidemiology at Dalhousie University in Canada. He is a psychiatrist and public health physician. So thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast, Steve. This is one that we've been really excited about because I think lots of people have this experience of getting a number of these spam emails and re- just reading your article really spoke to me about this dark side of open access publishing that exists for revenue rather than scholarly activity. So just to begin with, could you tell our listeners what you mean when you say predatory journals? So as you say, predatory journals are the dark side of of open access publishing. So open access publishing is dependent on um, author processing charges. So in the traditional publications used to survive by subscription. Let's say the BJ Psych is part of your subscription when you're a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. The idea of open access publishing is, is that the journal is supported by fees are levied on the authors, so that means that people can read it who are not members of the Royal College who are, or who don't have access to a library that's got a subscription to the, to the journal. But the, the problem with that is, is that it means that you can use authors as basically a revenue stream even though you have no interest in the scientific endeavour. And so these journals basically exist to live off author processing fees. They have no interest in what the content of whatever they publish is. They have absolutely no interest in that whatsoever. And because of that, that means that they can offer very unrealistically um, short processing times. They'll claim that they look at peer review or involve peer review, but it's obviously not true. And although superficially it looks very attractive to to authors because sometimes going through more authoritative journals can take a long time, if you're going to ones that do have open access, it can actually cost quite a lot of money. And so particularly, you know, more junior researchers are particularly good prey because they don't have access to a lot of money. It can often mean that it's the difference between getting tenure or getting promotion. But the problem is, is that even though it's superficially an, a, an attractive route, the danger is, is that their work will actually could well be lost forever because these journals have no interest in the content of the paper. So there's no what we'd call curation. No one makes sure that the stuff stays online so that people can ac- access it. They're not included in any of the sort of you know, authoritative bibliographic databases like PubMed or Embase um, or PsycInfo. So no one will actually find their paper anyway. And many of these journals basically 
fold after a few weeks or months. And so therefore, that work is lost forever. Mm. Absolutely. For the benefit of early career researchers like myself, what are the red flags to look out for to not get caught in this trap? So the um, first obvious red flag is getting unsolicited email from a journal that often, and people have to be careful here, often will sound very much like a legitimate journal. Mm. So they're not stupid enough to say, hi, I'm from the journal of predatory psychiatry, will you please admit yeah. to us? They're not, uh, they're not daft. So it often sounds like a legitimate journal, but with the name slightly altered. They usually start off with very flowery, flattering language. We read your fantastic paper on PET scanning in rodents. In recognition of your esteem and your obvious contribution to the field, we would like you to submit um, a paper to our journal. They'll often promise a very quick turnaround in publication. Some of them will actually say that because of your eminence, they'll actually waive the article processing charge. But in fact, they'll come and hunt you for it afterwards. So don't believe it when they say that they'll waive the charge in, in view of your eminence. There are often lots of spelling mistakes. The, co- the, the journal may be totally unrelated to your academic interest. So I've had stuff from orthopedics, I've even had stuff from um, oil shale management journal. (laughs) So obviously stuff that's totally unrelated to your field of interest. Or it will be a journal that basically covers basically everything. So basically they'll take anything. So it'll be like, you know, the the journal of medicine. So they'll basically take anything that's vaguely related to, to medicine. So that's really the first thing. It's getting these emails that are flattering, full of grammatical mistakes, promising unrealistically short turnaround time and either very low processing charges or they'll waive them even though they'll come back and and chase you for them uh, subsequently. The other thing actually, just to be aware of, and there's not many in medicine, but I'm sure this will come, there's a phenomenon of what's called the hijacked journal. This is a journal that was often a small, respected society journal mm-hmm. that can't easily defend itself. And the predatory publisher will actually set up a website that looks like the real thing mm-hmm. and will actually solicit contributions to that website, masquerading as the original journal. Now, I haven't come across that in medicine yet. Mm-hmm. It's more in the geographical sciences, but I'm sure it will come. So, you know, always double check where you're submitting to. If you Google, you know, the, your journal of interest, make sure that the, the website that is suggested is actually the, the legitimate website, not the hijacked journal website. And I said, I'm sure that will come. Because that's quite difficult to police because the internet, by by virtue of being the internet, it's actually very hard to actually trace where the particular website originated. And sometimes the websites also look very legitimate, isn't it? Don't necessarily rely on the fact that the Mm. website looks amateurish. Mm. I mean, some of them do, but don't rely on that fact. So there's 
opinions uh, that are slightly different that say that it's not all bad that it's sometimes the only way that some first time publishers from non western countries are getting to publish their research at all so what's your take on that in terms of thinking about what are the harms to the person publishing in such journals well i mean one thing i would say i mean i have a lot of sympathy for that because often people from low and middle income countries don't have access to the resources to actually submit to um, an authoritative open journal i would say though that some of them actually do reduce fees or even waive fees for people from low and middle income countries mm-hmm. so it's, it um it is actually worth asking the journal whether they'll reduce or waive the fees the other thing just to be aware of is is that and maybe uh, is that some institutions actually have like a block agreement with some of the more um, legitimate open access journals so actually that means that authors from those institutions don't have to pay processing charges mm-hmm. but if that's not the case mm-hmm. i can really understand why it's mm-hmm. tempting but the problem is is that, as i alluded to before no one curates the material so your stuff will you run the very strong chance that your stuff will get lost it just won't stay on the web mm-hmm. it won't get indexed in any legitimate indexing bibliographic databases such as you know PubMed Medline Embase and once you've been the prey it's actually very difficult to correct the mistake because they often allocate a, what we call a DOI so it's mm. a unique identifier so you're really in between a rock and a hard place on one hand the stuff is probably not going to be up on the web for very long no one's ever going to find it but on the other hand it's actually counted as a publication so if you try and send it into another journal a legitimate journal once you realize your mistake it can count as plagiarism and double publication which as everyone knows is a big no no so unfortunately once once you've been snookered there's absolutely nothing you can do about it and even if you refuse to pay they'll still allocate the DOI so they you know saying oh what if i don't pay them they'll just quietly bury it they won't they all actually keep the DOI and keep it up on the web for you know however long or short that is but effectively means that that work that you've done all that research that you've slaved over mm. is lost mm. and and the other thing is is that promotions and tenures committees are getting wise to this sort of thing so they'll go through people's CVs and they'll recognize even when you know something sounds very similar to a legitimate journal that you know people in the field know their field and so they'll recognize what's legitimate or not and the other things you can look at things like what's the volume number the issue number that you know the pages etc that gives you a bit of a clue as to whether if it's volume number 2 that's clean hasn't been around for a long time where it's mm. lot volume 132 it's clearly been around a lot longer so i'd really advise that it's not a good idea to pepper your cv with predatory journal papers because people will note it and it's one of those things that it's not a feather in your cap when you're applying for a job or wanting to get 
promotional tenure. And as an author who may have been unwittingly caught in the trap, is there any remedial action that's available after you've published? Unfortunately, nothing. Because you'll have no idea where they're located. I mean, they could be anywhere in the world. I mean, many of them claim that they're based in the Europe or the United States. But often they'll be can be based in a completely different country. So there's there's no remedy basically. So even if they actually give an address that's let's see in, in the US, mm. there was a chap called Jeffrey Beale, which I, I think we'll be talking about mm. um, talking about him shortly. He did a list of predatory journals and what he would actually he used to have a a sort of like a newsletter and he would actually look on Google Earth and f- you know, he would find the address that was stated to be the address of this publisher and actually put the picture up of what that street looked like. And it was often something like a suburban house or it was effectively a post office. or It was clearly not a legitimate publisher's office, basically. So I'm both a psychiatrist and a public health doctor. We mm. talk about primary, secondary and tertiary prevention. The only cure in this case is primary prevention. Secondary and tertiary prevention aren't available. And you mentioned bail, which takes me to my next question. Is there such database that's available? You talk in the paper about blacklists and whitelists. Could you tell us a little yeah, bit so, about that? Um, the, the, the first person who actually really identified um, this problem was a, was a librarian called Jeffrey Beale at the University of Colorado. And over the years, he plotted the, the rise of both predatory journals, so there's standalone journals, and predatory publishers who might publish a suite of, of titles. And he actually also had a smaller list of hijacked journals. And it's just a matter of interest to show how bad the problem. In 2011, I think he identified 18 predatory publishers, and by 2017, there were 1,300. So that's nearly a sort of thousand-fold increase mm. um, in them. So he basically put on a internet site all the you know the journals that have the attributes of being a predatory mm. journal. So some of the, the you know the things that I mentioned using spam email, unrealistically short processing times, the fact that it's very, it was very difficult to actually determine where the geographical location of the journal was. Other things that he also talked about, and which will also be actually in the, um, the sort of flattering email, are that they'll, they will actually either quote bogus citation mm. factors, or they'll make up an, an impact factor from an established you know, an established index, basically. So uh, that's another thing that don't be fooled when they start quoting about um, impact factors. There are there are the bogus ones, or they've just basically made up their own and um, are basically using mm-hmm. that to to snooker you. So um, he basically had a a list, both of mm-hmm. the, as I said, the publishers and the and the, and the journals. Unfortunately, it got taken down. Um, for unclear reasons, and that was a, a great loss. But thankfully, although the, the list is dead, long live the list, it is, it's actually been resurrected um, to the mirror sites, and more importantly, mirror sites actually have been updating his works. I mean, 
I just play an old mirrored sight. It's not much use because mm. it gets out of date really quickly. But there are a couple of uh, mirror sites that do actually update mm. the, the content. Mm. And um, just to promote the article, the, the, web, the, the website of these lists is actually available in the article. Yeah. So that's a blacklist. So then there's, a, then there's a white list that's maintained by the Directory of Open Access Journals. In the past, it's been a bit criticised that some dubious journals mm. managed to get onto it, but they've really tightened up now. And, and when people have actually, you know, gone through the list and seen, you know, um, whether there are any dubious journals in there, they, they largely seem to be weeded out. So the first, first thing is to check the blacklist. You know, one of the mirror sites of, mm. of uh, Jeffrey Beale and you can get the web link on the article, another plug for the article. <laughs> then there are the whitelists from the um, Direction of Open Access journals. And then there's a, I mean, there is another list which is called um, Carbel's List, and that does actually have both black and white lists, but actually you have to have a subscription to, to get access to it, whereas the other two examples are free, basically. And the last thing is to use checklists to actually make sure that the double check so yeah. don't just rely on the blacklist and the whitelist so there's a um, checklist at think check submit um, and again the web link is available in, in the article and that actually is a is a third safeguard in addition to having checked the white and the blacklist so it, it basically goes through things mm. like have you ever heard of this journal before? Do any of your colleagues know of, of this journal? Have they ever um, submitted to it? What's the reputation of the journal? So obviously, you know, more junior researchers may not know all the journals in their field. So checking with a colleague, particularly a senior colleague, is, 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 quite, is quite important. And I've known, you know, I've had rather enthusiastic postgraduate students that I've been supervising that have, have come to me and said, oh, there's this, there's this really great sounding journal. And I said, uh, yeah, have you, um, uh, have you checked any of those lists? Does it, you know, because it's mm -hmm. the whole thing, if it's too good to be true, it probably yeah. is too it's good to be true. So no one approach is foolproof. That's why I'm, mm. you know, the article yeah. says blacklist, whitelist, and look at mm. the checklist from um, Think, Check and Submit. And that way you should be able to escape the predator. Considering that there's such a mushrooming market for it, you were talking of almost a thousandfold rise in the last few years. What is the fix to this problem, in your opinion? Is there a fix to this problem, in your opinion? Well, I think, um, you know, an, an initial fix would be for when people, you know, especially for junior researchers, for when people start off in their research career, I mean, usually they're, you know, they're on a college training scheme or, mm. or they're on a, you know, a master's or even undergraduate students these days do research projects. So universities normally have courses at the beginning of this on research ethics. Mm. Well, they also should have a course on predatory publishing. Absolutely. And, you know, the dangers and why to avoid it and... Actually, the, the long-term harm it does both to the individual. So as I said before, it doesn't look good on your CV mm. if you 
got a publication list that's peppered with these titles, but also actually to the reputation of the institution and to science in general, because some people with very unorthodox ideas that are non-evidence-based actually use these predatory journals. In some respects, mm. they're being predatory on the predatory, in that they use these journals as, mm. a, as a way of, you know, as I said, advancing you know, unorthodox mm. ideas that are rather lacking in evidence. So, or it might be people who are promoting some non-evidence-based um, treatments in, yeah. in, in, um, in, in psychiatry. And they then can claim that their work is, you know, work has been published in a peer-reviewed journal. Mm. Well, yeah, in theory it's a peer-reviewed journal, they don't say it's a peer-reviewed yeah. predatory journal, mm. but um, it's a very good way to actually add legitimacy to ideas that would basically wouldn't see the light of day if they'd gone through a conventional peer-review process in, a, in a, an authoritative or legitimate journal. So I think it's important that when people start off in their careers, they, just as they have a, talks on research ethics, they should have talks on predatory publishing, and how it's not actually a victimless crime. Um, they can be the victim, but also science in general can be the victim, and even patient care. Because if unconventional ideas somehow gain currency, that actually can be harmful to patients' well-being. I mean, a very obvious example might be non-psychiatric, but an obvious mm. example is the anti-vaxxing movement and the harms that that can do. I absolutely agree. I think one take home just listening to your talk was that if it if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably too good to be true. Thank you so much for your enlightening description about predatory journals. That concludes today's podcast. Thanks again for joining me, Steve. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal Portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.